thanks so much for coming out. And I'd like to thank uh, uh, the Research Unplugged series. It's, it's really great to be a part of it, so thanks. Um, Really, a, a lot of what I'm going to cover, I, I teach a class COM 100, which is Mass Media and Society, kind of an introduction to mass communication class. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about, I present in that class. I've kind of pulled from here and there, so it's not exactly in this form, but a lot of uh, some of the basic issues, anyway, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about there. And so, um, in, in that spirit, I know that there are comic book fans here. I know that there are film fans here. And so, given that we're kind of combining two things that a lot of people know a lot about, I hope that you also feel free to speak up, uh, correct me if I misspeak, or add to uh, what I'm talking about, or we can go in different directions. In fact, there's a couple of times where uh, I, I specifically would be looking for your input about certain things. So I'm just going to throw out some basic observations, some basic points about um, where modern film is. We'll talk a little bit about where the modern comic book industry is and how they're... Um, uh, uh, interacting with each other and what this might mean overall for elements of our film culture and our, our visual culture and uh, you know just elements of, of what um, resources there are out there to increase the vibrancy of our culture. So Matt, I'm just going to jump in for a second yes. and remind people that um, if they could raise their hand for questions and then I'll repeat the question before okay. you answer so we'll get it all on our podcast. Okay, sounds great. Kay. Okay. Um, so let me show you a, let me show you a couple of lists. And so we'll start off with this list. I got this from boxofficemojo.com, which I'm sure many of you know about. It's a it's a great list for um, uh, box office information, you know, uh, revenue information about the film industry, especially uh, ticket sales domestically, internationally, overall. And so I'm, I'm going to show you two lists. And th this first list is these are the currently. I updated it Sunday after the Sunday box office figures came out. This is currently the the top movies in terms of um, revenue at the U.S. and Canadian box office for all time. Okay, and so for those of you who may not be able to see it, uh, the number one movie is a movie currently in release now, Avatar, which is brought in in the U.S. and Canadian box, the North American box office. Uh, $744 million and counting, right? That's why I had to update it Sunday. Uh, then we have Titanic, so James Cameron is doing pretty well these days, number one and two. Then Dark Knight, Star Wars, Shrek 2, um, The Extraterrestrial, E.T., Star Wars, Episode 1, Pirates of the Caribbean, Spider-Man, Transformers 2, Star Wars, Episode 3, Lord of the Rings 3, and Spider-Man 2, okay? So now, if you were a movie producer, a film producer, and you wanted to make a movie that had the potential to be as successful as the movies on this list, what would be the characteristics of movies you would include in your movie? Copying this list, what would you make sure your movie had? Okay, <laughs> noise and action, right? So a lot of big spectacle, right? A lot of special effects. A lot of destruction, maybe. Okay, right. A lot of noise. You know, you want to get that Dolby sound going on. Take full advantage of that. A lot of booms. Okay. What else? Okay. Okay. That you want topics that are about sometimes fantasy elements that it might involve kind of super powered or superhero or fantasy characters, whether it's from uh, 
whether it's kind of dwarfs or superheroes or um, robots that can turn into cars and vice versa, or um, pirates from a theme park ride, or um, aliens, or um, even you know a giant ship with that that involved real people but still sank very spectacularly, or people that plug into trees, which is what Avatar's about. In case you haven't seen it, okay. What else? Okay, you want easy archetypes, right? You want clear heroes, you want clear villains, you want stories that are fairly easy to follow, right? That, that translate across different cultures, right? So somebody watches Spider-Man, they're not thinking at the end, now was Spider-Man good or bad? I didn't quite get that, right? It's pretty obvious what's going on. The same way for just about all of these movies, they're very clear archetype characters. Yes. Right? That mostly these are fictional topics, right? They're not about history, right? They, they are kind of narrative films about not real events, we hope, in most cases, right? Okay. Any other things? Yes, right. So mostly these are films based on things that had existed before. Right? So people basically knew who Spider-Man was. People basically knew t the Titanic story. People knew, at least the target market, knew Transformers. Right? People basically knew Lord of the Rings. There's a few exceptions up there. Um, like Shrek, it was um, based on a book. But notice this is, of course, not Shrek 1. This is Shrek 2, right? So based on the first Shrek. People know Titanic. Avatar is pretty obviously new. It was a new property. but uh, is there another new one? E.T. was a new property. Star Wars was new originally. I think a book novelization was out a little early. It was or concurrently with that. But you get the idea. Pre-existing licenses, right? And you want these movies to have a lot of potential for what? Sequels. In fact, you see that the list is dominated by sequels, right? One, two, three. I'm not sure if that's the first one. 2006, is that the first one? Yeah, I think that is the first one. Seven, eight, nine, ten. I think there's 13 on this list, so 10 of 13 are sequels, right? You also want to make sure that once the film is done at the box office, you're going to make money by the trinkets, licensing, toys, a lot of licensing um, potential. So you want the characters to be visually distinctive. You know, not all of them are like that. I don't know if they sold too many Jack and whatever her name was, toys, right? Um, that would probably encourage weird play anyway, right, with the Titanic sinking tragedy. But for the most part, right, visually distinctive characters that are very easy to turn into toys or video games or board games or T-shirts or whatever. So a lot of licensing potential. And this is the view of the modern Hollywood blockbuster now. Massive resources go into these movies. These movies almost to a movie were very expensive to make. Many of them involve big stars. Many of them involve big directors. Many of them involve budgets around $200 million, with publicity budgets maybe in the $50 million range. Yes? Uh, this is, this is uh, gross revenue brought in, not profit, right? And what your question also is pointing to, it's not adjusted for inflation. So, and the point I want to make is, is that this is the image of the modern Hollywood blockbuster, the, the very things you all raised, but it's not historically the image of the Hollywood blockbuster. So if we look at a different 
measure of top movies. Here's the top movies of all time when you adjust for inflation. Now, this is still not profit. This is still just revenue brought in. Uh, but you see, when you adjust for inflation, the number one movie is Gone with the Wind, which is brought in over the years adjusting for inflation, $1.5 billion, right? At the, just in the United States and Canada, the North American box office. Uh, it, well, it's 1,000 million. <laughs> so it's 1,500 million, so 1.5 billion. Uh, Star Wars uh, is still up there, right? So you still have a few of these modern blockbusters. Then you have The Sound of Music, um, E.T. again, The Ten Commandments, Titanic, Jaws, Dr. Zhivago, The Exorcist, and Snow White, right? So how is this list, would you say, different from the previous one? Yeah, right? And they're of topics that are of maybe intellectual and, and historical interest, right? Um, so the, the Civil War, and you could talk about the win, having its own issues, but nevertheless, you know, a big blockbuster movie about the Civil War. Yes. There are, these are not just movies aimed at male teens, <laughs> but in fact, there's a broader demographic appeal in these movies. Yes, yes. Right. No, no, but you, your point's well taken that this was, that especially these early movies, they are theater-centered, right? They are about that, that theatrical release. Now, the theater is a small, is like the, a minority part, right? That they make, it's post-market, aftermarket money, right? The tertiary markets, which are no longer tertiary, they're primary. TV, cable, or things like the merchandise, soundtrack toys, things like that, right? The sequels later. Really, many, what many people have argued is exactly what you're arguing. In the modern blockbuster, the theatrical release is really an ad for everything that comes later. All the ways you make money. The DVD, DVD sales account for a much greater revenue generation than the box office. And then remember, when you count the international box office, which often comes just a little bit later, sequel potential, toys, video games, the theater is a small part. And with Gone with the Wind, the theater was not the small part. The theater was the part, right? And so you're right. The economics and the economic incentives have changed, right? So totally agree with that, 100%. But one thing I want to point out is just notice how the definition of blockbusters have changed, right? So that now you can have a legitimate movie that a studio can, can rest their entire yearly budget on, a tent pole, they call it, right, based on a toy or a theme park ride, or a comic book character. And so if you can just imagine somebody going to a movie studio now and saying, we want to make a three-hour movie about the Russian Revolution, and if you could give us about the equivalent of $200 million to make it, that would be great. It's not going to happen, right? And, and so it's just this weird altering of where Hollywood makes resources. Now, Hollywood still makes interesting movies, it still makes movies that take chances. It still makes movies that have historical significance. But they're not the ones that get all the resources, right? They are not the ones that are the wide release, highly publicized, big star, uh, hoping we're going to uh, have a big hit movies. It's the movies about Spider-Man that are that way. And so what I essentially want to talk about is comic books' role in this shift from kind of this very um, inclusive blockbuster model, where often... The, the biggest movies were about pretty adult topics, right? 
to now movies again about comic books or video games and, and talk specifically about the comic book's role in that. In fact, although it's not super reflected, so to speak, on the list we've seen, in fact, comic book movies, uh, I think, for good or for bad, and, and there's both. I'm going to talk about both maybe some negative and positive effects. Uh, comic book movies um, uh, really have played a, a big role in this, this narrowing of the blockbuster definition, right? We are defining the blockbuster as this action-adventure, big spectacle, license-based, sequel potential, soundtrack, video game, toy licensing model that we've got now. And so when you look at the top comic book movies, the top comic book-based movies in the top 100, and this is not adjusting for inflation, this is domestic only. So again, there's other lists we could look at where maybe these, uh, these would be different. You see Dark Knight is the highest at number three. You've got uh, all three Spider-Mans next after that. Iron Man, then you've got Batman. If we adjusted for inflation, that Batman, that's the 1989 Batman, that would be higher. We've got uh, Men in Black, uh, X-Men 3, X-Men 2, 300. Batman Begins and Superman Returns, <laughs> and and so I would what I want to argue is that if, that comic books have played a larger role in altering that blockbuster model than maybe the earlier list showed, and specifically I'm going to focus on the influence of a couple of these movies. Um, one movie that's not on this list, although if we adjusted for inflation, it would be, and that's the uh, 1978 Superman. And then I want to also talk about Batman at number 54, which was very influential in Hollywood redefining itself. Then also, I'm going to let you know at the end, we're going to talk more about, if you consider some of these influences maybe not so great, at the end we're going to talk about some positive effects that the comic book industry has had on film. So we will you know, give comic books their due as, a, as an aesthetic influence too. And, and I think it has had some very good influences as well. So when you look at what is comic, the comic book industry's um, effects on this kind of redefining the blockbuster, narrowing it, so it would be like that first list we saw, uh, there's just a lot of advantages that movies based on comic books have for this new super blockbuster model, right? Um, comic books, as Ryan said, uh, involve... Uh, well-known characters, they're pre-existing licenses. People know who Superman is, people know who Batman is, people know who Spider-Man is, um, you know, to a lesser extent maybe. Uh, people know who X-Men are, are, at least in the broader population. They do now, because of the films, but still, it was, they still were pretty well-known. Uh, they are um, clear archetype characters, again, clear villains, clear heroes. There's uh, clear narratives, there's a lot of fights. Right to resolve issues, not a lot of like political strategizing that's complicated. Right, resolve narrative plots, um, and again, that as as just a preview, that sort of stuff especially has a global appeal. Right, the more dialogue, the more cultural specificity you have, the more intricate um, plot things, the the less that's going to be appealing to um, out to countries outside of the movie's origin. When you have somebody punching somebody else, everybody understands that. Right. Um, similarly, there's a lot of uh, special effects and visual spectacles in comic books. There's people in garish costumes. There's people flying. There's people lifting up buildings. Right? There's all sorts of things you can do that are very spectacular. You know, in Superman Returns, he catches an airplane. Pretty good. It looks good on. That's impressive on film, right? So um, that also has a global appeal, right? Everybody can understand. Wow, that's that's an awe factor. They have a lot of tie-in merchandise appeal. Sell sell comic books, sell uh, comic book adaptations, sell images, video games, 
Um, there's a lot of sequel potential. The hero usually does not die at the end of, of these films because they don't die at the end of each comic book generally, right? So the hero comes back. Uh, it's With comic books, we know that it's logical that the villain gets resurrected. No villain ever dies for good in comic books like soap operas. Um, and, and finally, they're high concept. And, and by that, I mean um, they're, they're easy to describe in a sentence. They're easy to convey in an image. And that has publicity advantages, right? That, you know, it's, it's rare that if somebody says, they see the title Batman Begins, they're thinking, what's that movie about again? Right? It's pretty amazing. I mean, there it is in two words. It's about the origin of Batman, right? You don't say, is that, you know, it's pretty easy, right? Yeah. Yes, that excellent point. That's right. That uh, um, like where was somebody's? I know like Jim uh, James Cameron has said he couldn't have made Avatar, for example, before really he did that. He had the idea of Avatar, but the technology had not caught up. And especially a movie like Spider Man, where he's swinging around. You know, it, it looks impressive when you compare that to the Spider Man TV show of the '70s. It looks terrible. You know, in terms of, you know, it, it does look like it's you know how Batman was really kind of pretending to. <laughs> you know, and, and it looks like that. So yeah, you're absolutely right that some of, that's a great point actually, that technology facilitates this kind of appeal. That's right, and narrowing those demographic demographic appeals, you know, maybe, maybe targeting it in that way. Sorry, were you gonna... I was just gonna uh, ask you to repeat the, oh, okay. the, the, the point, it was okay. a very good point. Right, right. and just the idea, what, what she pointed out was that um, it used to be that reviews reviewers were maybe much more important, especially for these big films like Dr. Chicago, where there, where there would be this kind of buzz and momentum, and that now you've got um, movies that are essentially review-proof because they're based on these pre-existing concepts and that, the, and that the measure of success is the box office. And we see every Monday morning, right? What were the big films this weekend? It's like, it is like a box office score, or a, like a box score in baseball. Matt, we have a question in the yes. back. Just to repeat so everyone can hear, the, the comment was, isn't this a cheap way out to make a movie? You don't need to uh, have a great script or great actors or anything else. Right. Yeah, it's, and, and it's also, um, when you look, think about the economics of filmmaking, it's, it, it, that even more backs up your point because, yeah, and, and you're looking at a movie executive that doesn't want to get fired if the movie bombs, and if they take a chance on something and it bombs, they're fired. If they say, I don't know why Daredevil didn't work, who would have thought that wouldn't have worked, right? You can blame some other thing, but nobody would say, don't blame the idea for Daredevil. That makes total sense. Look, all this going on. So you're exactly right. There are these unusual dynamics, especially when we're talking about these really high money properties. I mean, where, again, it costs $200 million to make, another $50 million to produce, where a studio will plan their entire year around the finances around that film. Then we're talking a lot of let's reduce risk behavior coming in. I think you're exactly right. All right, so let's talk about these influences specifically uh, with comic books. So some possible effects of comics on the Hollywood blockbuster. So here we're going to just talk about specific films or specific movements where you see uh, comics establishing precedent. Uh, for the film industry is essentially what I'm going to argue for. And this one is the one I'm least comfortable with because I think you could point to a lot of similar influences on this. So, you know, exactly. You know, there's a lot of things going on with this, right? But what, one thing you could argue is that there, especially in the, in the early shifting of 
blockbusters from the Dr. Chicago Gone with the Wind model to the Transformers, um, uh, um, uh, you know, Spider-Man model, that um, in, those, in those early days, there was a lot of explicit copying of some earlier B-movie forms. And so when you look at something like later, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which explicitly was de de designed, the pace of it to copy movie serials, some of you may remember, uh, and movie serials didn't just involve comic book characters, but many of them did, and comic book characters especially fit in with kind of the movie serial plot rhythms. Comic books often, you know, are multiple parts. Comic books would have cliffhangers built into them often when there would be multiple story, uh, multiple issue arcs. And so um, one influence you could argue is just that early comic book portrayals in film with the, action, with the emphasis on action, adventure, cliffhangers, danger, um, you, you, if one of the things you can criticize modern blockbusters for is that they seem very episodic, that you know specific scenes are these big things and there's not anything really kind of drive you through. It's like just one big you know, battle scene after another. You could say maybe part of that is the old movie serials of the 30s. And of course, many of you know what I mean by this, right? That movie serials of the 30s, you would go see a movie. Some of these were um, exemplified during the Depression to get people to come to movies more, where you would see a movie, you might even see another movie as part of a double feature, and there would be a lot of pre-movie content before that, and one of those might be one chapter of a 13 or 15 chapter movie serial, right? And again, the idea is many of those involve comic book characters, so here's, uh, I've only seen scenes of it, an especially bad one, I guess, uh, a Batman and Robin movie serial from, the, I think, the 40s, actually. Um, anyway, that's, that's one point, is that you could argue there's, there's uh, early influences. But more significantly, and this one I think I'm on safer ground, is saying there's definitely comic book influences, is when we, we look at um, how the blockbuster has gone from the historical event blockbuster to the comic book um, super blockbuster, we can really look at influences of movies like Superman in 1978, Superman II in 1980, and then we'll talk about Batman in just a little bit. And one of those influences was the idea that these movies about silly topics can have big stars in them. And really before Superman, it's hard to find too much of a precedent for that. There probably is, and I'm not knowing about it. Um, but there were big kind of popcorn blockbusters before this, like Star Wars and Jaws, but neither of them really had big stars at that time. Some people became big stars as a result of those movies. But uh, Superman really was noteworthy for its, and the very first actor it hired was Marlon Brando. And Marlon Brando, you, you know, made tens of millions of dollars for essentially 15 minutes of film time, right? But they did that purposefully, that like, wow, you should treat this movie seriously. Look, we hired arguably the best actor in Hollywood, and so this is going to be a big deal, right? And what that did was start to mainstream, further mainstreamed this idea of big resources spent on what seemed to be silly B-movie topics, right, or popcorn topics. Uh, the second person hired was um, the villain, Gene Hackman, thanks. Jeez, <laughs> I could see him, but the name wouldn't come. Also, Superman um, is known for, um, and you know, it was made by um, De Laurentiis Films. Uh, it was also known for its um, paying attention to global release patterns. It actually was released first outside of the U.S. before it was released in the U.S. 
So they, they really saw this movie as having global potential. And again, other movies before this had this too, but it was such a visible movie to do this to. And so what we've got, and you can't really see this, I'm sorry. This is the French version, Superman La Film, right? And then this is the Japanese version. Exact same images. You promote Marlon Brando. You promote Gene Hackman. That's who people know. You promote Superman. They didn't know Christopher Reeve at the time, but they knew the costume, right? And so you can see the exact same kind of general iconography uh, that are meant to appeal to a global box office. And again, Superman is really a movie that, that paid a lot of attention to that global box office. Uh, Superman also had uh, a, a technique that other movies, like, like the uh, second two of the Matrix film movies have done, that is you automatically assume there's going to be a sequel. In fact, just because you automatically assume there's going to be a sequel, you film them at the same time, right? Sequelness is built into the film, right? And so here you've got two movie posters. Actually, they're DVD, DVD boxes. I cheated a little bit, or uh, VHS DVD. And so you can see, again, the exact same image um, for Superman the movie and Superman 2, although you may notice in Superman 2, the World Trade Center is there as a kind of a mark of its particular time. Okay. But again, that idea of assuming there's going to be a sequel, let's be efficient and film the sequels is part of that. I thought, didn't they do that with the second two Pirates movies too? Yeah. So, oh, that's right. That's right, exactly. Right. So pretty common thing. And what? And Lord of the Rings, right. So it's pretty common when they have that assumption now these days. Um, Superman 2 um, was one of the f uh, first big blockbuster movies to have product placement. In fact, kind of weird product placement like Marlboro Cigarettes, right? Lois Lane smoked. Um, and Superman gets knocked through a billboard, as we're seeing here. Marlboro uh, billboard. And actually, um, those of you may know, um, the controversy about tobacco advertising when Congress investigated um, whether to limit tobacco advertising, which eventually did it, used this specifically as a way to show how tobacco advertisers would try to appeal to kids through things like product placement. But remember, Superman 2 occurred uh, was released before E.T. You know, E.T. is often seen as the product placement movie with the Reese's Pieces that attract E.T., but actually this happened just a little bit before then. Uh, so again, that idea that, okay, this is okay to do, right? This is a part of the business model. Now, with Batman, um, the 1989 version, uh, it added other things to this kind of blockbuster idea. And one thing it added is that it, the big blockbuster movies don't have to be quite as campy. You know, and, and it's funny, if you, um, if you watch Superman, the first movie, it's really two movies, if, uh, in my opinion. The first movie is kind of the serious mythic movie where he's growing up in Smallville and there's like shots of cornfields and golden tones and the Marlon Brando part before that. Very serious. In fact, kind of draggy. And then the second part of the movie is the campy Lex Luthor, Gene Hackman, you know, camp it up, mug at the camera kind of thing. And I always thought that was uh, the studio saying, we gotta, we can't make this too serious. Right? We gotta have like Batman 1960s pow, whap elements to it. And the second, uh, the um, 1989 Batman got rid of most of that. You know, it was a pretty dark movie, really, for a big blockbuster, directed by Tim Burton, as, as I'm sure most of you know. So they emphasized kind of the silly tone less, but they emphasized how to make money in-house with this concept of corporate synergy. That is, make it in the context of a giant corporation where that giant corporation owns a lot of different media outlets and then move the license through those different media outlets that you own. Right, 
And in this case, it was the context of what used to be called uh, Warner Communication. Now it's Time Warner. Time Warner, of course, one of the biggest corporations in the world. And really, the, I think the move that Batman made, and other movies made it before this, Star Wars sold a lot of toys. But what Batman, I think, really um, solidified is, don't think of this as making a movie. Think of it as promoting a license. And it's a license you can move through these other things that you own. So, for example, with the case of Batman. So, Batman, the first 1989 Batman was one of the few movies that had two soundtracks, right? It had the, um, the Danny Elfman um, soundtrack, right, which was the, the symphony stuff. And then it had the Prince soundtrack. Prince was added to that movie. So, they're seeing, make, and in both cases, they're released through Warner Records, a subsidiary of uh, Warner Communication and Time Warner. At that time, now it no longer is. Um, you create a novelization, right? That you you write a novel based on the screenplay. By the way, this gets, I don't know, I'm, Kevin, I'm sure you know if there's like a history of novelizations out there or work on novelizations. Because it's a kind of interesting thing, and you see some weird things when novels are based on movies, because sometimes what you'll see is you'll get a movie based on a book, and then they'll write a novelization based on the movie, right? So remember remember um, when Francis Ford Coppola did Bram Stoker's Dracula, and it was called Bram Stoker's Dracula? You know, there was a novel called Bram Stoker's Dracula, not written by Bram Stoker based on the movie, right? <laughs> so anyway, you get weird things like that happening with this, yeah. It was a bestseller. Ah, and then that and you know that probably refers to the Dark Knight influence from before. All right, and they'll change things. And they'll change it in filming, right? Yeah, that's very interesting. So it just said the idea that um, that the that things like a novelization or other adaptations are not identical to the final film because changes can happen in the final film, and often these are based on scripts. That's exactly right, right? And so, in fact, you see novelization by Craig Shaw Gardner based on the story by Sam Hamm and screenplay by Sam Hamm and Warren uh, Scarin, right? And so, again, what they'll do is they'll take the screenplay and they'll write the novelization before the movie comes out, right? So, and published by Warner Books, right? So again, another subsidiary, which they, they no longer own that now either. There's the comic book adaptation, right? Uh, through subsidiary DC Comics, and of course DC Comics is important because they own the Batman character, right? So when Warner Brothers makes the movie, it makes it based on a Time Warner property because Time Warner owns DC Comics. Probably should have made that a little clearer before that. Uh, you've got the theme park ride through what was then a subsidiary Six Flags, right? The Bat Batman the Ride. Let me stay over here for a second. Oops, wrong way. Uh, you've got later the VHS, this was before DVDs, released through their subsidiary Warner Home Video, now called Warner Home Entertainment. Uh, just a couple of years later, uh, they did a kind of spin-off cartoon. It wasn't exactly... Um, a spin-off of the movie, but it was influenced by the more dark tone of the movie. This is Batman the Animated Series, done through Warner Animation, again, uh, a subsidiary that they owned. And of course, you had other, many other licenses of Batman through things they didn't own, right? 
So a lot of sales of toys and t-shirts. So you've got the, the Joker action figure with Squirting Orchid. Um, you've got things like um, they had a deal with Ralston uh, to make Batman cereal, right? That's what that is. And then this is my favorite one. This is Batman Returns cereal. It came out later. So this is a cereal sequel, right? <laughs> okay. But you see, again, the, the figures here just shows what is the primary entity. And in the movie industry, you, I don't think you can no longer say the primary entity is the movie, right? It's the license. You can just see the economics that they, they brought in. Batman was a huge hit, like one of the top movies of that year, maybe the top movie of that year. And so it brought in $250 million at the box office, uh, real money, real-time money, 1989 money. But it made $750 million off of everything else, the toys, soundtrack, book, comic book, park ride, all that kind of stuff, right? And so when a, when a media industry sees that, it's, it's the cart and the horse kind of thing, right? What drives what is a real issue, and this is part of the reason why they see comic books as so valuable for properties for these reasons. Okay, so what we've got, when, when we're looking at the, um, the effect of kind of the business practices of comic books and film, really... Um, it's not just films that have been affected, as many of you, I'm sure, know. It's comic books that have been affected. And if, if the film industry does not consider themselves making films, they consider themselves making brands, like the Batman brand, it's the same way with comic books. Comic, books do not, comic book companies do not see themselves anymore making comic books, the medium. They see themselves making characters that they can license to other media. And so oftentimes they'll do that directly. So Iron Man um, is kind of a key movie in the history of the blockbuster, even though it's only a few years old, because it's one of the first movies that really was solidly produced. Marvel Studios existed before this, but really solidly produced by Marvel Studios, where Marvel, you know, the competitor to DC Comics, took control of its own movie life, so to speak, right? Um, and so they really kind of consider themselves a movie company. And so, um, really, they just either they consider themselves making movies or they just consider themselves part of a larger media conglomerate. So, um, and some of you know that, uh, and it was, a, it was finally approved and enacted at uh, the beginning of this year, is that Disney has bought Marvel, right? So, you've got a Mickey, Mickey Mouse, Spider-Man um, mashup going on, right? And so I stole that from some internet site that, that's playing with that idea, right? Where Donald Duck's the Hulk and Goofy's Wolverine and, and Mickey Mouse's Spider-Man. Uh, and even with DC Comics, which is already owned by Time Warner, right? And they've been owned by Time Warner for about uh, 30 years-ish, um, since the 60s, so maybe longer. Um, and DC Comics um, essentially got dissolved, got folded into Time Warner so they're not their own separate subsidiary, but now they're part of Time Warner's film and entertainment division, and they changed their name from DC Comics, de-emphasizing the comic part, to DC Entertainment, again, emphasizing that they want to do everything, right? All right, now just a, a few things uh, to kind of finish up and then on a little more positive note. So while you could argue that comics' effect on Hollywood has limited the scope of the large-scale large blockbuster, so not so many Dr. Zhivago's, not so many Gone with the Winds, more Transformers, more Spider-Mans. Um, so you could argue that, but you could also argue, I think pretty legitimately, that other comics 
have had maybe, if, if you consider that first trend having some issues, this other trend is a little more interesting and maybe a little bit more positive. That other comic forms, uh, usually, although not exclusively, uh, more adult targeted graphic novels, often sold in bookstores, many of you have seen them, uh, they've been uh, sources of some film inspiration. And so I just wanted to end with uh, consideration of a few of these. So many of you may have seen um, Persopolis uh, about a, uh, a you know, small girl who grows up in Iran during the Iranian Revolution. It showed at the State Theater um, uh, about a yeah, two years ago, like that. So this is a, car a cartoon. <laughs> this is an animated film based on a graphic novel, right? And again, a graphic novel dealing with a pretty adult-oriented topic, even though it's about a, you know, a preteen and then teen girl. You know, it's about issues of kind of religious fundamentalism and cultural exchange and oppression and, and terrorism. So it's a pretty heavy-duty comic book. It's not really a comic book. It's a little bit uh, maybe more elevated than that. But, it, but it, it influenced a very, very good animated film. Um, we've also got comics influences on documentary. <laughs> and this documentary is not to everyone's taste, uh, but it's the documentary Crumb uh, that's a profile of the 1960s underground cartoonist Robert Crumb uh, that can be pretty... Um, Disturbing because he himself will push the edge in terms of uh, portrayals of sex and violence um, and has a seriously unconventional family himself. And he sort of plays with the idea of what makes somebody a genius and what makes somebody kind of crazy, right? Arguing that he is probably a little bit on the edge of genius, but his brothers are not quite there kind of deal. Uh, so it's a very interesting, but again, influenced by his own work. So if you haven't seen it and, you know, you're up for the unconventional, it's, it's a very interesting movie. Some movies that have been about um, really intelligent um, discussions of the role of violence, how violence might affect family dynamics in the case of A History of Violence. That was based on a graphic novel called A History of Violence. Um, v for Vendetta about terrorism and what, what is, there, is it possible to have, what, what, what's the definition of a terrorist versus a freedom fighter kind of issue? Um, based on a graphic novel, and The Road to Perdition, uh, also based on a graphic novel, uh, where you know the, um, a hitman, a violent, a person who lives a violent life, has to deal with the impact, how this might affect his son and his own image, and and the kind of the legacy of violence you have to um, deal with. So these are three movies. You know they may be flawed, but at least are an attempt to be an intelligent discussion of violence, and um, based on graphic novels. Right. Yes. Right. 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 Right, and, and also I think, so she said about the issue that when you have a, a kind of a film dealing with more serious issues, but to have kind of comic book influences, how do you bridge that gap between different audiences? Some that want to hear the serious stuff, others that want to see the spectacle. Are, can, are there a problem with this? And in and, and one way, one thing that I, I think I'm taking from your question is, is there kind of a curse of the comic book blockbuster when films try to do something a little more serious. 
And the same way with maybe Watchmen, you could argue that um, you know it, it, that was moderately successful, um, and maybe you know like people who were expecting just a you know Spider-Man-esque kind of movie had heard no, it's really kind of bo a bummer, you know, and it's really a lot of downbeat stuff, and it's kind of confusing. Like okay, well maybe then that's that's not what I'm going to see then. So and that, or maybe adults. Well, I'm not going to go see a comic book movie. Right? So you have both kind of happening. It's like neither fish nor fowl kind of potential effect. So definitely that you're right about that. And, it's, and in fact, was it, it might have been Ryan, somebody was talking about studying movies based on comic books where they downplay the comic book part for that reason. That they, they want to kind of fool people. So they, like, and maybe in the history of violence, people didn't know that it was based on a graphic novel. Right? David Cronenberg movie. And, and nothing in the publicity really emphasized that. Uh, and actually, I, and, and I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers, I think the movie was better than the graphic novel, actually, in that, in that particular case. One of the cases where the movie was better than the book. Matt, we have yeah. a comment over here. Yes. Oh, I see. Right. Now that's a great question. And it is it is so his, his question was to what extent does kind of all these different licensed versions affect the other licensed versions, and especially me, does the movie feed back into the comic book? And in some cases, yes, and in some cases, they explicitly don't do that, because sometimes the comic book industry will try to subdivide comic book titles into different markets, right? Um, and so you might have like a more younger Batman version that might be influenced by the animated series or the Brave and the Bold, right? So, you know, um, one of the Cartoon Network's shows right now is Batman the Brave and the Bold, and there is a specific comic book title for that, and um, um, Zach Roman, one of our graduate students, is working on a project about that, actually, uh, kind of exploring that issue of how they affect each other and things like that. You know, when the Batman TV show came out in the 60s, which was very campy, you know, you could argue it did kind of camp up some of the comic book portrayals of Batman. Uh, and it is true that these licenses are very valuable to these uh, companies, and they don't want people messing around with them too much. They do want kind of the canon to be respected. And so I wouldn't be surprised if you see a little bit of that going on. And also some, some of this might be that the, the script writers grew up watching the 1970s, 80s Superman movies. And they're, even if they're not ordered to be influenced by them, they are influenced by them. Like who directed uh, Superman Returns? Um, the guy who did X-Men 2. Does that ring a bell with anybody? He, anyway, he has said he was influenced by the earlier Supermans, the Richard Donner Superman. And so you could tell Superman Returns is very influenced by the movies more than the comic book. Um, again, just to kind of continue with the theme about, you know, maybe some interesting influences, graphic novels or comic art have had on film. Um, you've got um, a graphic novel like Ghost World, 
um, that was made into a very interesting, if again, maybe disturbing in parts, um, movie, um, you know, kind of a graphic novel to indie movie effect. Um, you could argue that some movies have been explicitly affected by aesthetics of comics. They try to copy the aesthetics of comics. So you've got a, a movie like Sin City, uh, which is based on a graphic novel series by Frank Miller, where the, the director of the movie, again, and, and the, uh, the DP, the director of photography, explicitly tried to copy a graphic novel aesthetic with the garish colors and the composition. And so I grabbed this from some website. I didn't put this together. And so you have, again, the, the graphic novel panel and the, the uh, film shot that, that tries to copy, again, that color and, and what's going on there. And in a movie like 300, again, it has a very distinct look that you could argue is influenced by some of the original art that was based from the graphic novel, and also by Frank Miller in that case. Uh, and in my favorite movie of all of these influences, I don't know how many people have seen this, because uh, I was a big fan of the, I guess, it, I mean, it was, it, was, it was out before the word graphic novel was around, uh, a series that's been, that still I think is going on and, and started in the 70s, a comic book series called American Splendor, uh, uh, written by, um, and some of you may, in fact, he was in town a couple of years ago, written by um, a guy who, when he first started it, was a, was a file clerk in a veterans hospital in Cleveland named Harvey Picar, and the graphic novel was about his life. So the movie, the graphic novel is about a file clerk in Cleveland, right? And it's and very intelligent, reflective on these, these, these it's kind of neo-realist, small moments of life, reflecting on things. Uh, he, he doesn't always portray himself very favorably. Um, and he, he, he was, you know, he's done these for 30 years. And they made a movie with uh, uh, Paul Giamatti. Um, and the movie, if, how many people have seen it? American Splinter, okay. I encourage you to see it. It's, um, it's a movie that isn't just a film version of the graphic novel, but it reflects on what it means when you take control of your own image when you create your own image in a medium. And so Harvey Picar, the person, appears in the movie and talks with the actor playing him, right? And, and they'll show uh, panels that are animated in the movie. There's at one point, there's a play that they're watching of American Splendor that they're filming. In a way, it has all these different versions of who is Harvey Picar, right? It's a very intelligent exploration of that. And so this is an example of a movie not just influenced by the plot of a graphic novel, but influenced by the dynamic of graphicness of, for, of a comic book form. So again, it's something I, I really encourage you to see if you haven't. Yes? Can you see the difference between, um, I know superhero comics are technically genres of comics, but right. it's a genre within the form. Right, comics. that's right. Right. Going into these other realms, do you think maybe it's kind of approaching that too, where they're going to explore different realms of comics and also going into the fiction comics? So, like, it's like you just know, to make sure everyone has sure. heard it, the question is essentially: um, uh, Will uh, this trend continue? Are comic books growing up, and thus are we going to see more grown-up films based on comics? Right. And I think we see that with these kind of more smaller productions. You know, none of these are have the blockbuster budget, right? That we've seen the the, the even like a Sin City didn't really 
you know, it didn't do that well, the first one. It kind of had a, it did well on DVD. I think, um, you know, these are people who make movies, especially these smaller films, are artists. And even the writers are artists, right? And they're, and they're looking for artistic inspiration. And many of them are fans of these graphic novel artists that are doing very interesting things. And by the way, just as, as a plug, you know, our that Petit Library has a graphic novel series where they bring in graphic novel creators. Uh, and they bring in some big names. They brought in Harvey Picar. They brought in um, uh, Alison Bechtel this semester. They brought in um, Howard Cruz earlier. Um, and, and so those people um, inspire a lot of other people, including filmmakers. So now the issue, I, I think what it's going to take is, when are we going to have a movie that does what you're saying, that, that is influenced by one of these complicated comic art forms, and it's just an overwhelming hit, or you know, you know, gets nominated for the Oscar. This movie's great, Paul Giamatti is great, but he wasn't nominated for an Oscar, right? He should have been, but he wasn't. Um, and so I think when that happens, there's a legitimacy that'll come. So they're doing it now, but when is the tipping point, right? I mean, that's a great question. Matt, I just want to let you know we're at the five minute point. Okay, so. okay. Well, in fact, that's it. <laughs> oh, great. Well, so, we have time for so questions. So I know, open it up for questions, please. Yeah, just say preliminarily, you've all been great, really. This has really been fun. We have two questions over here. First, the gentleman. That's right. Right. The question is, what is your opinion about uh, the theory that comics are a very basic art form that connects back to cave art? Right. Well, I, I mean, yes, is kind of the answer. It is. Now, what that means exactly, I'm not sure. Although, I mean, one thing it might mean is if the comic books die, and by the way, comic strips are in the same boat, right? Because comic strips are tied to newspapers. We all know newspapers are in trouble right now. If those forms die as media, you know, maybe we'll lose something. Because maybe, and maybe we'll lose something that's been around a long, long time. And maybe it's not going to be the same to transfer it to the internet where it's going to be animated a little bit and stuff like that. Maybe there's a contemplative nature sometimes to the print form with picture and words combined. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a great question. And I, I, one can definitely argue that. You know, there's, there's big debates about what's the first comic book, what's the first comic strip. You know, where can we consider that form developing? There's all sorts of debates about that. But what we know is... There's legitimate arguments that it's been around a long, long time. This combination of picture and words, especially, is kind of a unique combination. Um, and so, yeah, that's for me, the implication of that is, is that something we might lose if we move away from a print, a paper culture? Maitri, you had a question? Right. Right. The Phantom, the Lee Falk comic strip. In India, it was. Oh, it was a big bomb here. <laughs> I liked it. It was kind of. I liked it. Right. 
Right. Right, that's right. Yeah, you're exactly right. The global market is huge in this movement, right? And they're looking for archetype characters, recognizable ones that have been around a long time. I mean, Superman is, you know, since 1938 or something like that, right? That's a long time. Very, you know, easily recognizable icons. So you're exactly right. The, the global market has pushed this. And, and, you know, the things like American Splendor, which did not do that well outside the U.S., didn't do that well in the U.S., frankly. Um, but, you know, those movies are still, though, you don't need the huge budget to make those. So that's the advantage they would have. And by the way, um, you know, I, I focused on the U.S., but obviously there are many countries that are, have their own rich film comic book tradition, like anime, for example, in Japan. I mean, so, and, and there's many, many others. So um, some of this could be also talked about in a completely different cultural context. Matt, we have time to wrap up with two brief questions and answers okay, sure. uh, from this side. Yeah, it's it's that's yeah. He's, he said that the, that at least in the near future, thing the trend that I talk about at the end doesn't doesn't seem to be continuing that much. Um, and yeah, it's yeah. I'm sure that this is a nonlinear thing that we're gonna. There's gonna be years where it'll be better than others. And and you know, a movie like Scott Pilgrim, and we have uh, someone Ryan Lazardi who's written about Scott Pilgrim. In fact, um, is you know, it's got interesting things going on there. And it has a lot of fights. <laughs> so the issue is, what is the movie going to emphasize? What's the movie take out of that? The interesting things or the fights or both or which one, you know, right. So you're right. At least in the near future, I, I don't see a lot of more edgy stuff. And we have one last on. question over here. Um, I find it kind of interesting that on modern comic book movies is they seem to be attracting a lot of like, good actors, not necessarily big names. Right. A lot of kind of lesser known actors, but at the same time, they're reducing them to like a single character. For example, Alfred Molina, very good actor, but now he's just known as Dr. Octopus. He's done a lot of Shakespeare, but now he's just known as Magneto or Gambell. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, again, good question about when, when these really great actors uh, are in these movies, do they get typecast? Does it, does it limit kind of their image? You know, I think if you're, and I've heard Ian McKellen uh, interviewed about that issue. And, you know, what he says is, well, it gives me money to do other projects that maybe aren't quite as well-funded. I have the luxury now of doing that. He would say, maybe I can get the occasional young X-Men fan to watch something else I've done. So it might expand horizons in other ways. Uh, of course, they get paid very well. <laughs> so some of it is, is about that, too. So, yeah, but nevertheless, you know, you wonder, does it, does to what extent, given especially how pervasive these images are, and all these different media, how it shuts down a little bit the aesthetic range of an actor just because of audience perception, right? Yeah, I mean, great question. Every, all questions were great. Thanks. Well, thank you very much. We've come to the end of today's talk. Join me, please, in thanking Matt McAllister for a very thank you. fascinating talk. Thank you, everyone. Talk.